This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com galaxy and entering the promo code GALAXY. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 189 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing People of Color Destroy Science Fiction, a crowdfunded special issue of Lightspeed Magazine written, edited, and illustrated by people of color. The project has raised over $30,000 on Kickstarter, and you can help unlock the remaining stretch goals over at destroysf.com POC. To learn more about the previous volumes in the series, Women Destroy Science Fiction and Queers Destroy Science Fiction, check out our panels in episodes 112, 123, 133, and 173. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Nalo Hopkinson, who you may remember from our feature interview back in episode 81. She's the author of books such as Brown Girl in the Ring, Skin Folk, and Sister Mine, and editor of books such as Whispers from the Cotton Tree Root and Mojo. Her short story collection, Falling in Love with Hominids, was published in 2015, and she's also the co-editor-in-chief slash original fiction editor of People of Color Destroy Science Fiction. So Nalo, welcome to the show. Hi there. Then next up, we've got Nisi Shaw. She's a founder of the Carl Brandon Society and has co-edited books such as Blood Children, Stories by the Octavia E. Butler Scholars, and Stories for Chip, a tribute to Samuel R. Delaney. With Cynthia Ward, she co-authored Writing the Other, A Practical Approach, and her Belgian Congo steampunk novel Everfair is due out from Tor in August. She's also the reprint editor for People of Color Destroy Science Fiction. So, Nisi, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. And also joining us today is Sunil Patel, who you may remember from our panel on Black Mirror back in episode 153. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Intergalactic Medicine Show, Asimov Science Fiction, and Fireside Magazine, and his plays have been performed at the San Francisco Theater Pub and the San Francisco Olympians Festival. He's assistant editor of Mothership Zeta, and also serves as the personal essays editor for People of Color Destroy Science Fiction. So, Sunil, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And today's show is brought to you by Casper. If you need a new mattress, just pop on over to casper.com galaxy and order today. You won't have to visit a showroom or haggle over prices, and the mattress will be shipped to you in a box that's the size of a mini fridge. Then all you have to do is open up the box and watch as the mattress naturally expands to its full size. And I'm happy to report that I'm now the proud owner of my very own Casper mattress. I unboxed it last night, and the process was just as easy as advertised. I was able to replace the mattress in my spare bedroom, which was honestly not very comfortable, so maybe now people will want to stay with me more than once. My new Casper mattress is actually even more comfortable than I expected, and I'm also now the proud owner of a large, empty cardboard box, which would make a perfect time machine, duplicator, or transmogrifier. Today's show is the first of several episodes that Casper has already signed up to sponsor in 2016. That's a big boost for a small podcast like this one, and it wouldn't be possible without amazing listeners like Zach Chapman, who bought a Casper mattress last year after hearing about it on the show. So if you'd like to join him in the pantheon of heroic listeners who sleep well at night knowing they've helped save Geek's Guide to the Galaxy from total destruction, and obviously they also sleep well at night because their mattresses are just so amazingly comfortable, just head on over to casper.com galaxy and enter the promo code GALAXY. It's $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size one. 
and you'll also get a large empty cardboard box at no additional cost. The mattress will arrive in the mail, and you have 100 days to try it out, and if you decide not to keep it, Casper will pick it up for free and give you a full refund. Terms and conditions apply. So remember the address is casper.com galaxy, and you should also use the promo code galaxy, which will get you a $50 discount, and also let Casper know that you heard about them here. All right, so now let's get to our panel. Okay, so why don't we start off with Nalo. Now, Nalo, last time that we talked to you on the show, you talked a bit about race fail and some of the issues surrounding race in science fiction. And I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about that history for people who may not be familiar with it and just talk about why there's a need for something like people of color destroy science fiction. Wow, that's a long story. Um, So race fail 2009, and let's hope we never have another one. was a, a series of discussions that started on the internet about uh, representation of people of color in science fiction. Um, when I say series of discussions, I mean tens of thousands of posts. Uh, people were angry about being um, misrepresented and made invisible and lack of access. People got angry at them being angry. Um, though a few good things did come out of it, a bunch of uh, really cool publishing initiatives, such as um, guessing people of color destroy science fiction. But there is um, a pushback amongst certain segments of the science fiction community who um, think that uh, making a literature that is about um, challenging convention, who think that talking about that and talking about how it plays out in the real world is spoiling their fun. So. Um, given that I think a lot of the science fiction community is not angry with us. Uh, this just means that there's more more literature being produced to, to kind of bring the issue to the fore and more good stories are being published. Well, I mean, now you mentioned a couple concerns that people have, including representation. And there are a bunch of essays that are being released as part of this Kickstarter for People of Color Destroy Science Fiction. And I read through them all and they're very interesting. But that was really something that came up again and again was people said that uh, growing up, being a science fiction fan, that uh, there was a moment where they became aware that people like them weren't appearing in these stories. Do you just want to talk about what was your experience with that? Sort of when did you become aware of that or how did you become aware of that? It took me a long time, uh, perhaps because I was growing up in the Caribbean, um, which is uh, very, very diverse racially and where uh, people of color in the majority so it took me a while to notice that the science fiction I loved didn't have much of me in it. And uh, that happened when I was reading uh, a novel by Chip by Samuel R. Delaney. And I happened to um, have gotten a hold of a, a hardcover copy of it, which meant that his picture was on the inside jacket flap. And when I saw him, I realized that I really had never seen any black writers of science fiction wasn't sure I'd seen black people or any people of color much represented in the literature. And so that got me started on a hunt um, for where the writers of color were. And it, it made me um, more aware of representation or lack thereof. Um, it's bad enough for black folks. If you go looking for First Nations folks, um, hang on, I'm going to try and say that in American. For Native American folks or Native from anywhere, it gets even worse. Well, so when you, you say you went on this hunt, kind of how did you go about finding other authors? I worked for a public library at the time, so I did a whole lot of interlibrary loaning. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, for, I, one of the first people I found was Charles Saunders, who is a black science fiction writer from Canada. Um, Tanana Review, Stephen Barnes. I first tried looking at covers, but the covers could be misleading. Um, Sometimes they just outright put a white person on the cover. You'll see some of uh, <laughs> some of Chip's books, and you read them, and you go back and you look at the cover, and you think, "Huh." Um, and a lot of the time, if uh, it, it it used to be, seemed almost standard to, if it was a person of color, to not show them or to so stylize the cover that there were no people on it. Remember the classic cover for um, Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash where Hiro protagonist, who is uh, Japanese, is shown almost in the background of the picture, fully dressed with his back to the viewer, so you can't see any features at all. Um, I don't mean that Hiro should have been naked, but... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So there was that kind of thing. It's it's changing, but there was still this notion that if you put a person of color on the cover, um, white people would never read it. I mean... Seriously, this is going on to this very, very day. There were issues with the novel that is coming out uh, from Tor in September. So, mm-hmm. I remember you talking about that. Yeah. And I, I just have to say, it's it's sometimes an automatic thing. And and people, it's not necessarily done out of malice, but happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you want to say, Nisi, kind of what your experience was growing up? Hmm, I've been thinking about that. Um, I think I just kind of twisted myself in all sorts of different ways to try and see myself in what I read. And, you know, to the point of deciding that I wasn't black and you know, there were black people in there, there were white people, and then there was me. <laughs> uh, oh. So, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one that's done that either. Uh, you know, where are the people like me? Well, they're not here. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure not like uh, the stereotypes that are presented to me as black people. So I must be something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just kept happening. and gosh, when did I finally realize that I could actually insert myself? It was through the lens of feminist science fiction. Yeah. I blame Susie McKee Charnas, um, Joanna Russ, Monique Whitted. Uh, I I blame them because they gave me the idea, well, you know, actually, women could be people. Uh, Maybe black people could be people, too. Yeah, I did some of those mental head games too. I um would read comics as a kid and I convinced myself that Daredevil I knew he was a white guy when he took off the suit, but <laughs> when he was in the suit he was a black man. <laughs> and for for very troubling reasons, it was because in the suit he's coded as a troublemaker and his skin is darker and he's very physically active. The submariner I just knew was Caribbean. I mean, he lived near the water. He, <laughs> his skin was brown. He had a different accent than the others. And he was waging a, a revolutionary war for the rights of his people. He had to be Caribbean. Hmm. How about Sunil? Do you want to say what was your experience? 
Oh, yeah. So I talked about this in the Kickstarter video, and and it's true. It, it seems odd to say, but growing up, I literally did not believe or think that Indian people could have science fiction fantasy adventures. I thought fantasy adventures were for white British school kids, because that's what everything was when I was reading growing up. I It was always, yeah, white British school children going on portal fantasies. And in high school, I started getting really drawn to Christopher Pike, because in almost every one of his books, he had some sort of Indian character in it, or parts of Indian culture. Uh, he has a whole series called The Last Vampire Series, which is vampires mixed up with Indian mythology. And I was, I loved those because it was sort of the first time I'd seen my culture and my people in anything. But of course, they were still side characters. And I even, I, I also had a secret thing, sort of like Nalo, but not, not in the same way. But I had a secret fantasy that Christopher Pike was an Indian guy. <laughs> be- because, really? like, why else would there be Indian things in his books if he wasn't <laughs> Indian? He had to be an Indian guy, right? And he did it for me. Um, I was kind of disappointed when I discovered that he, he is actually a white guy, but I had a stiff fantasy that like, he was an Indian guy, and that's why he was putting Indian things in his book, because no one else was, so that had to be it. And it wasn't, it wasn't until a few years ago, like, in my 30s, that I read N.K. Jemisin and read the Dreamblood books, and it blew my mind to, to have be reading a fantasy novel with brown characters in it. They weren't Indian, and they were, you know, they weren't even black or, you know, they, they were, they were fantasy characters, but they were dark-skinned, and they were the protagonist. And it blew my mind because I'd never experienced that before. And I'm currently reading The Star Touched Queen by Roshni Chokshi, which comes out in April, and it's Indian mythology. It is an like actual fantasy that's in, completely based on Indian mythology. Everything is stuff that I grew up with, and it's like nothing I've ever experienced in my entire life, and it's amazing. I mean, I'm sort of curious, given that this was sort of an issue for you, did you ever think about giving up on science fiction because of this? Or did you have friends who never really got interested in it because of that? I mean, I, this, this is sort of me personally, even now, is I, I don't, I'm not, I, I'm not super activist, as it, as it were. So I'm not also aware of a lot of things. So the fact that I did not see these things was not, did not even feel to me like it was a problem. Until I started hearing these conversations that, you know, a lot of it came out of things like race fail. And, and think about things like race fail and those conversations. And it doesn't make, it doesn't just make things aware to white people. It also makes things aware to us people of color who may not have realized that we've internalized the white supremacy of the world and the way we see everything. And so here, it was here. things like, it was things like that. I'm thinking, Oh, wait, this is a problem. Why have I not noticed this is a problem my entire life? Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And I mean, sometimes people say, oh, well, those are the bad old days. But I was at a conference um, last year um, where one of the people in the audience was a young um, mixed race woman who loved horror, who wanted to be a writer, who thought she couldn't write what she loved because she wanted to kept dreaming up um, black female horror characters. And it wasn't until she found an ARC of um, one of Octavia Butler's novels on a bus. That was a, that was a, a, a watershed moment for her, and now she's writing. Uh, so it's still happening. Um, it's not our lack of vision. It's what's what's being represented to us. Wait, wait, uh, she, she found an ARC of an Octavia Butler novel on the bus. Yeah, that's a pretty yeah. amazing amazing <laughs> thing to happen. 
isn't it? It's like a it. Hello, there you go. <laughs> you need this. <laughs> and uh, and now she's writing, and it's it's heartbreaking to me that people, um, whole swaths of people, don't think that their stories get to be told. Well, it's the, it's the thing. It's the thing that I, I, I mentioned this. I, I I was talking about this earlier on Twitter. Um, I, I are, are we are we profane in this? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> All right. Like, I, I, I said, I, what I said was, white supremacy is supreme as fuck. It gets you from the moment you're born and never lets go. Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing, is, you grow, you come into this world, and from the minute you're born, you're, you're born into the world of white supremacy, so it's how you end up seeing the world from the moment you're born. You can't fight it, because it's already there. Well, you, you, you do fight it, but you, it's like, Right. You know, it's like it housework. Up, it is an uphill <laughs> battle from the moment you're born. It's like housework. It it's never done. Uh, I was lucky uh, growing up. Um, I am the the daughter of a library technician, um, my mother, and a an actor, poet, playwright, teacher, my father, and living in the Caribbean. So um, I, we were very keyed into the literature of the region. I knew that people of color could write <laughs> and that we could write whatever we wanted to. Um, so when I started writing science fiction, I did have to do the sort of unhooking of my brain. The first story that came to my mind um, was the default kind of uh, fantasy that that is white folks set in some part of Europe. And I sat with it because it wasn't making me comfortable and completely changed it. But I knew that I could do it, and um, I'm kind of blessed that way. Um, and it, it still, it really, it hurts me when I see that 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 people don't have that advantage. I had the same thing. Like uh, I, I was always writing default white because that's what I, you know, it's sort of the you output what you input. And so whenever I was inputting characters. They were just white because that's, you know, outputting characters. They were white because I'd only inputted white characters. And it, again, never really occurred to me that I should put Indian characters in my work, even though I was Indian, because that didn't seem like what fiction did not have a place for me. So I figured, well, that's what fiction is. It's white people. So I will write white people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And <laughs> and it wasn't until actually the first first story that I wrote that was actually about Indian characters. There was very much based on my life as an Indian person was the first story that I wrote when I decided to, like, actually try to become a science fiction writer and be published. And I wrote it specifically for Kaleidoscope, um, which is a YA anthology that was very much a... It's a young adult anthology about diversity. And so it was very much about... Not only not only people of color, but also, you know, disabled people, queer people, all kinds of diversity. But because that anthology existed, because, hey, someone said, we want to hear, we want to see these stories, I wrote a story for that. And I don't know that I would have otherwise, unless someone said, okay, we actually want to see this. Well, that's interesting, because there is this whole world of, prior to People of Color Destroy Science Fiction, this whole world of anthologies focusing on this. Do you guys want to, like, what would you consider some of the best um, anthologies or things in this vein? Um, Nisi, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, anthologies focusing on, on pe uh, people of color? On representation? Yeah. Uh, of people of color. Um, oh, there are a whole bunch that are specifically focused on that. Uh, as, 
they seem to be primarily uh, self-published, uh, if you want the honest truth. Um, there's a group of writers focused around uh, Falogun Ojetade and uh, Milton Davis that put together anthologies like that. There are also anthologies that uh, focus on colonialism. Um, the one that I was in, so of course I love it, is the one that hmm. Nalo co-edited, So Long Been Dreaming. Uh, that is a fantastic anthology. Um, but a lot of anthologies don't are, are not exclusively people of color, but uh, do a lot to make sure that there's some sort of representation. Uh, and I think that's uh, a trend that's growing and continuing. Uh, there was uh, Streets of Shadows. Uh, Maurice Broadus was a co-editor of that one. And uh, that had a high uh, percentage, I would say, of people of color in it. Uh, there's also um, Mothership, uh, edited by... Bill Campbell and Ed Hall, uh, and that was the, the point of that one was, you know, to bring the funk. <laughs> In other words, to uh, to uh, play up that uh, mothership connection with uh, Parliament funkadelic and uh, Afrofuturism, and uh, not all black contributors. Uh, and, and, and it wasn't as broad as all people of color, but it was fine, fine anthology. Uh, how about Nell? Are there any ones that you want, want to mention? If we're talking, um, pre about 10 years ago, um, see, this is where entitlement can come in handy because when I first started publishing, there really wasn't much like that. Uh, a few years before there had been under African skies, which were, stories, science fiction stories about Africa, but um, uh, Gardner did not know where to find African writers. So there are no African writers in the in the collection. Um, I just figured I belonged, and so I would send my, I would send my stories anywhere. Uh, and um, they, they got published, um, some of them. Uh, so what I wanted to see was more anthologies that would let me know that there were people of color in them. So when I had my first novel published, I was approached by a, a, a new press that actually didn't last very long, but long enough to, to come to me and say, would you do an anthology of Caribbean fabulous fiction for us? So I did that, and I, I have been involved since in a number of anthologies, some that have been uh, specific around issues of, of race and culture and some that have been generic. Um, so one of my favorites is Cherie Thomas's two, uh, dark matter anthologies. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in them (laughs) (laughs) and my partner's in one of them, but, um, that's not the only reason I love them. Um, but they were one of the first, um, there's been sort of just an outpouring now of work. Um, recently we have, um, Cuento, um, Lost Tales, which is an anthology of new Philippine myths, uh, co-edited by Rachel Cruz and Melissa Sipin. Um, and, uh, just, just came out, uh, The Sea is Ours, um, 
co-edited by uh, Jamie Go and Joyce Chung, um, which is South Asian steampunk. Um, there's just there's amazing work being done, and some of the best anthologists are also um, some are just routinely including making sure to include work by a diverse range of people which is one of the changes I think we've seen um, partly because of race failing, one of the, the, the glorious changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sunil, is there anything you want to add here? Uh, well, Nisi and Nala have mentioned a lot of great anthologies, um, some of which I've heard of and have meaning to meaning to read. Uh, I, I have sort of make, I'm sort of up and down on anthologies. Often I will read a bunch of stories and only like a few of them. So I don't feel like I can recommend the entire anthology. Um, but as far, but what I can is, is actually Kaleidoscope. Um, Kaleidoscope, uh, edited by Julia Rios and Alyssa Krasnostein. And it is, as I said, it's young, it's all young adult fiction, science fiction and fantasy, and specifically focused on diverse characters. Um, so it's a mix, it's not necessarily, there, there are, there are writers in there who may not, who may not be diverse in the same way they're writing, but all the characters exhibit some sort of diversity, uh, on the diversity spectrum, as it were. And it's actually very intersectional. Which is what, which is one really cool thing. One of my favorite stories in the book is called Signature by Faith Mudge. And it's this twist on the Rumpelstiltskin story. And the main character is an Indian girl in a wheelchair. And neither one of those things are really relevant to the plot of the story. It's just who she is because there exist in the world Indian girls in wheelchairs and they have stories that need to be told. And I love the fact that she was just an Indian girl in a wheelchair and she had a weird thing happen to her in a bookstore. And that's the story. And there's no need to really, because people are always saying, oh, why does this person have to be Indian? Why does this person have to be in a wheelchair? Or so, and, and so on. And why not? <laughs> yes, why not? <laughs> exactly. Why not? And one of the, my, one, one of my favorite things about that was actually, she's an Indian, she's an Indian girl. And pretty much the main reference to the fact that she's Indian is there's a, there's a small, small discussion on the where are you from question that any person of color, especially, you know, non, non, from, a, from a, usually from a foreign country, um, we'll get all the time is the where are you from question. It's mentioned in there. I loved it. And it's the, and that's, if you took that out, you could probably just say, oh, that person is just a, a, a not a person of indiscriminate race because there's nothing in there that's racially sig- significant in the story. But I love that little bit that sort of connects me to that character as like, I, I get that. I get that. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Rumpelstiltskin because there was a comment by Shveta Thakrar. Where she said she talks about how it's am I am I pronouncing Shweta. that wrong? Shweta. Shweta? Yeah. Shweta Thakrar? Yeah. Uh where she says that uh, you know, if you write Rumpelstiltskin for the North American audience, people are gonna recognize that it's a play on that story. But that if you use other kinds of stories, the audience may is very likely not gonna be familiar with the uh, the myth that you're riffing on and how do you approach that as a writer? Well, it's, it's, it's actually interesting because, um, like the story that I, that ended up writing for Kaleidoscope, but eventually sold to Clockwork Phoenix and will be in Clockwork Phoenix 5 coming out in April is in, it involves the, the, the Ram, the, the Ramayan. It involves like the Ram Sita, um, Robert myth, which any Indian person growing up is for well worth, you know, it's, it's one of the biggest myths in our culture. And anyone coming in that story with, with that background, oh, like, oh, you're mentioning Ram and, See, you mentioned you mentioned the Ravern. You know Ravern. I know Ravern is. It's great, and I know that there are probably people who, if I say the word Ravern, that means absolutely nothing to them. And so, 
I, 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 I get through it. You say, oh, it's a tavern. And then in the next sense, I call him the Demon King. It's like, all right, good. I mean, I didn't need to call him Demon King for anyone who actually knows Ravern. I can imagine all his ten heads or whatever. They have already an image in their mind of what Ravern looks like. But I had to kind of provide that in a way that's not um, condescending to the people who already know what it is. <laughs> it's like, yes, we have, we've read the Ravern and Sunil. We know what you're talking about. Um and the characters themselves, of course, are Indian characters, and they know what they're talking about. They don't need to sit there and explain to you what the Ramayana is. And so it's, you had to, it's a delicate balance between act, trying to make it accessible to an audience that may not know what it is, and um, not alienating, and you know, not wanting to alienate your readers who are really familiar with it, and make them feel like you're writing the story not for them, when in reality you're. you're it's this thing where you're, you're kind of writing the story for quote-unquote everybody, but we're telling these stories for everybody, but we know that they're going to resonate a lot harder for people who are from that culture, because they know these things. That also goes back into the Star Touch Queen, which I'm reading by Roshni Chokshi, and everything has resonated for me personally because I know all that stuff. And I know that, you know, you, David, who has not grown up in the same culture, will read that book, and you may love it too, but you won't get the same feelings that I do, because you don't have the same background. You'll still like it, but you won't have the same feelings. And it's because there are things in there she doesn't explain, for instance. There are words she doesn't explain because they don't necessarily the plot, but she knows that they'll have the right reaction and the people who then the people that the reaction is there for. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would have to second that um as in if you are using myths that are not familiar to uh people that you're writing for, not in not familiar to your entire audience, only part of it, well, then you uh, get to educate them a little bit. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because, uh, actually, I was thinking of another anthology that I really like, uh, Breaking the Bow, um, edited by Anil Menon. Uh, I actually snagged the story out of there for another anthology that I was editing. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you educate people, and and hopefully you do it in a pleasant way. <laughs> was that was that a, a Ramarion? Riff anthology? Yeah. Okay. Yes, it was. <laughs> but here's the thing. People might not know the specific myths, but they know myth and they know folklore. Um, so science fiction fantasy readers are really, really smart. Um, if you're invoking the style of a myth or the kinds of things that happen in a myth, um, we can see those traces. So even if we don't know what the myth is, uh, we get the feel. So give us enough to go along with the story. Um, and you don't need to explain everything. Now, I know some people will object to that. There is also this notion in science fiction that the story should be completely um, uh, laid bare for the reader. And uh, I don't agree with that. Um, and nowadays, Google is your friend. Um, if there's something in a story you're curious about, look it up. Um the story does not have to sort of open its beating heart and hand it to you. It can have some mysteries. <laughs> There's, it's, it's, I've just been kind of vexed recently by, by, um, what seems to be a growing notion that, uh, that science fiction fantasy really shouldn't change and shouldn't challenge the reader. That is what they are there to do. <laughs> How does <laughs> how does a, a, a form of literature that is about being flexible um, 
engenders so much inflexibility in people, and it, it's really become a bugbear to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, we talked about oftentimes when people of color, one big problem is that people of color are just absent from science fiction stories. But then there's a whole other category where they're present, but presented in just not a great way. <laughs> right. um, yeah. There's yeah. a really funny thing from uh, Troy L. Wiggins. He, he, went, he, he enumerated a whole <laughs> list of uh, complaints about this. But uh, uh, Sunil, do you want to pick up on that? Uh, yeah, that was in his essay called wonderfully titled Intergalactic Color Greens. Which yeah. is an amazing title. <laughs> um, and he mentioned sort of the, the three rules of black characters in science fiction or in general in any movies. I don't, I don't remember them all three at the top of my head, but and anyone who's watched movies in general knows them, even if you're not black, because they become running jokes of the cinema world. You know, the fact that if the black man dies first, if there's a black character, they're going to die first. And if there's a black character, they're usually the black best friend or the neighbor or the side. It, the story is never about the black character. And so it's, it's the time where if, if you see a black person in the story, it's not about them. They're going to die. They're not important. They might not even be named. Um, but yeah, he, he, he pointed that out. And that's the thing. The other thing would be to contrast that is Arthur Chu's essay uh, called My Life as an Alien American, where his thing was that what he noticed is that in science fiction films there's so much orientalism. So it's mm. not that it's not that Asians even you don't you don't even see Asian people exactly in science fiction. <laughs> All the aliens are very clearly Asian inspired inspired, you know, more like yeah, it's inspired seems like it's a good thing, but it's not really a good thing <laughs> as to how they're portrayed. And yeah. and that was actually the interesting thing about putting together these essays is it's making sure I got a wide variety and diversity of voices and backgrounds. So it wasn't, you know, I, I guess, you know, because it, as you can see, the experience of experiencing science fiction as a black person is different from the ex experience of science fiction as an Asian person. You see and react to different things. And that's the kind of things you see portrayed. It's not the same thing. I just want to read this line from his essay. So he says, there were never more than three black people in any respective galaxy, except for random planets somehow chock full of blacks who were unable to progress their culture past iron spheres and loincloths. Blacks were not allowed to interact with each other. Instead, they were required to float alone and lonely through their respective spaces like lumbering chocolatey gas giants. <laughs> oh, I must read that. Oh, no. Uh, you do, yeah. no. You should know yeah. all the when you get a chance. I mean, all the essays are just chock full of amazing lines. They're so good. I love <laughs> them. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, well, actually, speaking of the essays, um, Nisi, why don't we talk about your essay that you wrote for the People of Color Destroy Science Fiction? Okay. Well, uh, yeah, because that one just came out today, and and people are happy with it. I'm very, very glad they're retweeting some of the lines and all. Um, I wrote it. When I was the only black person in the auditorium at the Tip Tree Symposium last year. And, and I had to figure out what was going on. Why? Why? Nisi, can I interrupt for a second? Yeah. Um, this, this actually makes me a really bad editor. But when I was reading the essay today and I was about to quote that line, the forgetting line, I saw it in summer 2015. I thought, that can't be right. That can't, that, that has to be like, <laughs> that has to be like 2012. Like, this, that happened, this, that can't be right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that happened two months ago. Uh, 
And so, you know, before that, I was used to this idea of, you know, I could go up to a convention, I could go to a convention and shake hands with every person of color there. And I could have done that at this thing as well. And, and I, I figured out why and talked with people about it because, you know, I just really don't care. Um, if people get mad at me, well, then they can uh, have that feeling. So I, I did uh, figure it out and, and wrote about it, um, why this uh, symposium dedicated to a, a person who inspired an award that was given to me and two other black women, uh, why it would be so white. That was basically uh, my point, was that it's still going on and there are reasons. So um, all we can do is make it better. Keep going. Mm-hmm. I mean, could, yeah. could, could you give us just a, a hint of what, what those reasons are? Well, uh, it was the people who had organized the symposium were thinking about what the, about the past. And so... In some ways, the symposium embodied the past. They were thinking about uh, what was going on when James Tiptree Jr. was alive, uh, when Alice Sheldon was writing as James Tiptree Jr. So they were basically reconstituting that. And at that time, there were very, very, very few black science fiction writers, very few writers of color in the science fiction field at all. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of how it looked to me. It's like, oh, this is the 70s all over again. I mean, I mean, now, do you want to talk a little bit about what your experience has been as a person of color showing up at science fiction conventions? Um, well, nobody's mistaking me for Octavia Butler anymore. Um, I'm surprised. <laughs> Uh, that used to happen fairly frequently and you know I'm of two minds I mean on the one hand it's not a great mistake to have made upon you (laughs) Uh, on the other hand um, I like many people in science fiction have a whole lot of trouble recognizing faces and remembering names so I try to sort of steer a middle ground between high dudgeon uh, <laughs> and uh, just laughing it off. I don't ever laugh it off, but um, I do try not to shame people for having made the mistake because then I think they're more likely to to think about it if they don't have this huge well of shame associated with it. I yeah. hope. I hope. Yeah. Um, because I've made dumb mistakes too. I mean... There's there's this this notion that it is possible to be non-racist. We're we're soaking in in a racist society, so it's not about so much about what the individual does or doesn't believe. It's about what are you doing to change the system. Um, my experience, <laughs> uh, you see, it's hard to tell from the inside because. Or from the outside, because no one's ever going to say to you, this happened because you're a person of color. Um, all you can look at is, is sort of long-term effects and your suspicions um, and look at tendencies. 
I have had uh, people mistake any of the black women writers for each other. I will say, because it's funny that we're not helping by having double, you know, two syllable names starting with N. (laughs) Nalo, Nisi, Neddy, Nora. Um, (laughs) There are others of us. There's Alaya. There's Sophia. There's, you know, there are others of us. But but I do recognize that this is an issue still. Um, It's weird. And it's the kind of thing that you you deal with all the time. I've had people sort of assume I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I said something about lack of representation a few weeks ago talking to CBC Radio. And um, someone who's a friend of mine was on a listserv where people were being angry about my even daring to say that. Uh, and someone said that I clearly had never heard of Samuel R. Delaney. Uh, <laughs> right? They named one person, so you're wrong. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Dude, he was my teacher, he's my friend. Um, and I can count higher than one. There's still a problem. <laughs> so, so having people assume that we are all ignorant, that in fact there is nothing to what we're saying because they don't understand it. Um, having people assume that uh, being called African-American, for instance. I love that one, actually, because people will... will Call me African American. I'm about to go speak on, on, you know, uh, get up on a podium and the person introduces me as an African American writer and I get up there and I say, well, no, I'm not African American. And they boggle at me because they think I'm nuts because I've just said I'm not black. No, I've just said I'm not American. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so it's little things like that. And it's the bigger systemic things that it is difficult to prove that, um, you only, you, you know what they smell like. Right. But but you can't ever sort of nail it down because no one's going to tell you that that's what's going on. So it creates this atmosphere where, as people of color, we're suspicious. We just are. Uh, and we have very, very good reason to be. And telling us that we're insane, well, we're very used to that. We're not. Right. Well, you mentioned this just like extremely hostile rhetoric that you'll sometimes get or often get, I guess. And um, Sunil, there's a... <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry. I right. I for, I forgot about it because it's just so much part of the fabric of living <laughs> in this community. Well, well, it's striking because it's uh, uh, when I was younger, this was very invisible to me. And then I'm good friends with Tobias Bakel, and he would just talk about all these crazy emails he would get, and it it just blew me away. It was just not something that I thought existed at all. But uh, you know, obviously, I was uh, naive. Um, but but Sunil, there's this essay. Uh, by S.B. Divya, if I'm saying that right, where she talks yes. about this. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, do you want to just uh, s- talk about that that issue? Uh, wait, how do you have that? It hasn't gone up yet. <laughs> I got them all. I got connections, Oh, man. wow. All right. We'll talk about S. It hasn't even posted yet. This is spoilers, guys. Wait, <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm actually pulling that up for reference now. I was like, wow, we can talk about that early. Um <laughs> I mean, I actually, uh, yeah. I actually have the quote here if you want me to read it. Um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, so, she, so she says, um, For the first time in all my decades of loving this genre, I heard that women don't like hard science fiction, that non-white people shouldn't be main characters, that gays don't have a place in the wider universe. Then I became an author and I heard even worse, that the only reason to write characters who are Filipino or Ethiopian or Colombian is to satisfy some arbitrary liberal slash politically correct standard of fiction 
I heard bitter rumors that editors were biased towards stories by authors who weren't white American men, that writers like me were ruining the genre by shoving our unrelatable characters down fans' throats. How could I parse these accusations? Yeah, I, I, I read that section and it's, 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 it is the thing where you don't realize kind of, uh, what, how bad things are until it's sort of shoved in your face. If you if you live in the and I, I'm I'm still sort of in that world. It's kind of funny how to listen to Nisi and all the talk, and even reading some of the essays about, um, like Mark Rochier's essay last yesterday about his experience at Worldcon and you know and all of the Nisi talking about their experiences going to conferences and and what they've been seen, and I've had really good experiences for the most part. So I don't I feel like am I doing something wrong? Am I not why am I not being oppressed enough? I don't know if I can speak about this because people aren't being racist to me. What did I do? And and and, it, and it's it's the thing which ZB is talking about where you don't kind of you don't realize that this racism is uh I forget what Alfred, what you said now. What did you say racism is something uh that you're soaking in? Yeah, yeah. You said something else earlier. I forget what it was. But it was, it was good. But yeah, but yeah, yeah. We're, we're basically soaking in racism. You don't realize it until it actually jumps up and bites you in the face. And that hasn't happened to me that much. And so I haven't had the really visceral realization that that DB experiences in this essay. I've, I've seen it. Like I, I've actually all, you know, we've all seen um, what he's talking about. People talking about the fact that oh, you have to. You know, there has to be a reason for this character to be this. And people, oh, God. Uh, there was a discussion recently on Twitter. There was an agent talking about diversity in publishing and whether whether we need diverse writers. And someone responded that maybe we don't need diverse writers. We just need people to write diverse characters. And because she was worried that the, it this actually goes into sort of some of the responses to people call people call her story science fiction. It's the oh well, what if I don't have some quote unquote unusual diversity to set me apart? That's unfair to me. Uh, oh, where to begin? Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's that it's that same thing where it's it's saying well, what you experience like it's oh, it's is it so bad that people are quote unquote biased toward these stories that aren't about white American men? Um, it's not that we're not biased toward them; it's that we're sort of fighting our fighting against our bias toward them is what is happening. Because we've already had a bias toward them. So now we have to say, wait a second. I'm doing that naturally. <laughs> I need to take a step back and think, wait a second. What if I don't automatically assume that a story about white, story written by a white American man is the quote, is the best story there is? What if I just say, what if I assume that a story written by a young Indian woman can also be good? Yeah, we just, uh, it, it's like, there's this idea that, that there's a, tiny, tiny pot, and we're somehow making it smaller by trying to jump into it as well. <laughs> um, it's a literature. It's as large as the world and as old as human beings. There's room. I mean, when there are people like that online who are that hostile, do you engage with them? Do you just try to ignore them? What approach do you take? For me, it's uh, if I'm, if I have time, if I have energy, um, Sometimes I will just say, I give a two-word answer, like, power gradient. <laughs> if, if they don't get that, then fine, you know, I, I actually have stuff to do. Those words will haunt them for the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I have in the past engaged and slowly realized that this was a tactic to waste my time and to make me not want to turn on my computer in the morning because if I got online, my computer is going to yell at nasty things at me in my head. Um, so I, I tend not to um, respond anymore. If someone's trying to engage me in an actual conversation where, where they are willing to take the risk, their minds might be changed because that's how I try to come to a conversation. Um, then yes, if someone's genuinely looking for, for uh, some kind of information or some kind of understanding, then yes. But if they're just sort of throwing nasty barbs out to try to get me to waste my time, um, the Twitter block function is a wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to identify that sometimes. I I definitely agree that if someone is actually honestly, sincerely looking for a conversation and trying to understand, you know, but why, you know, why do we need people of color to story science fiction? Why do we need a special magazine just for them? I don't understand why this is a thing. And and it's hard. And, they, and the thing about it is, is that if someone just comes up and says that, like on, if someone replies to my tweet about people of color story science fiction and just says, but why is this necessary? My knee-jerk reaction, of course, is to assume it's a troll because that's what trolls have been saying all this time. That person yeah. may not be a troll. And so it's hard to step back and think, wait a second, it, there's a small possibility they may not be a troll. And if I treat them like a troll, they're not going to get anything out of this and I'm just going to make things worse. But if I, and, but, but then there's also the possibility that if they are actually are a troll, you, you don't know. It's like, it's freaking like Russian roulette on Twitter. Like it's a gamble. Uh, if you, if you try to engage naturally and then surprise they actually are a troll, well then you just ruined your fucking day for no reason. Yeah. And I mean, there is the thing too that if the questions are really, really, really basic, those questions have been answered before. Um, so another tactic that people employ is to sort of try to waste your time with anti-racism 101 when they could just look the answer up. Um, they sort of try to turn you into the, the, the person who convinces them. And I'm like, well, people have done this work. I've been doing this work. Other people have done this work much better than me. You're on, you're on the internet. Go look up some of the discussions and then come back and maybe we can start somewhere that is not, you know, anti-racism 101. Um, I am not there to sort of, um, mammy you through this. Right. Yeah, and, if, can... and, and if they say, and if they don't do that, if they're not willing to do that work, you know, they weren't really serious in the first place. Like they didn't yeah. actually. <laughs> you can always throw them a couple of links. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, all right, well, let's, let's talk about people of color destroy science fiction. Um, kind of talk about like what stage in the process are you at? Are you taking submissions if people are curious about it? Where can they find out more? That kind of thing. Um, so, so now, wh why don't we start with you? Well, why don't you talk, just talk about what are you looking for for, for this project? Um, I am co-editing the fiction with uh, Christine Ong Muslim. Um, we are looking for stories that... Um, have an edge to them that that aren't just I don't want to say just about any story because stories are just really not easy to write but stories that <laughs> that take the theme of destroying science fiction seriously that are trying to um, make us think new thoughts that are surprising takes on whatever um, it's the place to send the stories where you have really 
pushed your craft, um, have taken risks with your storytelling, uh, have done things that you uh, fear will make people upset. Um, I don't want to speak for Christine, but we've, we've been back and forth about this, and I think those are the kinds of things that will grab our attention. It's not as as simple as putting characters of color in your story. I mean, that's always nice. Um, but um, it, it, we want something that's going to push back. Uh, and how about DC? What are you looking for? Well, uh, I'm not looking for submissions. Um, <laughs> I, I'm uh, I, basically I have uh, three stories in mind of the five that I am allowed to publish. And um, I'm looking for suggestions, I guess. Um, but I, as soon as I found out that I was going to be able to do this, I made a, a nice couple of pages of legal pad full of stories that I wanted. So um, rather than say the names of the stories, because then we get into things like uh, there's no contract yet, I will just say that I'm looking for um, the stories that, made me feel that it was possible to destroy science fiction as a person of color. All right, great. And how about Sunil? What are you looking for? I'm looking for nothing because my job is done. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was the first person to have to do anything because my personal essay is work, supposed to be a Kickstarter update. So I have all the essays in. Um, all my work was done last year. And it, it, was, it, it was, was interesting about this project was that I was asked to do it, and I'd never done anything like it before. I mean, I'd never edited personal essays. That's not, I didn't even write personal essays besides blog posts and journal entries, so I don't know why I was asked, but I thought, okay, I want to be a part of this, and how am I supposed to find people of color to write essays about science fiction? How many people of color writers do I even know? I don't know if I can find 28 or 30. My list right now is like 76 to 80 people, and so I could have done like two or three of these projects with the number of people that I came up with. And it was actually a great experience just to realize that I, that I, I was aware of so many pe people of color. Not, they're not all writers. Some of them are editors. Some of them are podcasters. Some of them are just fans and bloggers that I knew would be able to write essays about the science fiction community. And I, um, was able to contact them, and I, like I said, I wanted to get a good balance of voices, and uh, Alia Debarar, no, no, sorry, no, it was Zen Cho. Zen Cho said that she liked that I also pick people from uh, not just America. So we have voices yeah. from from Asia, from from India, like, and not not just like Asian Indian Americans, but actual people currently still living in Sri Lanka and, and Australia and, you know, and uh, France and Vietnam and, and things like that. And I don't think, actually, no, I don't think anyone's currently in Vietnam, sorry, but, um, but I wanted to get the perspective from everybody. And that was the balance I wanted to pick. And now it's a matter of the response to it has been tremendous. Uh, yesterday, Neil Gaiman tweeted that he, that he supported people, he backed people of color to story science fiction. And I asked, Hey, like, Hey, Neil Gaiman, thank you for supporting it. I hope you've been reading the personal essays. And he's, he's, he's <laughs> and, and he said, I've been loving them. So these essays that I asked a bunch of people to write have now been read and loved by Neil Gaiman, who has a lot of influence and, and power. And so I hope that they've influenced him in some way. I hope they've opened his eyes to think, I mean, we know that he, he's, he's been very vocal about the American gods and sort of making sure things are well cast in that, in that respect. So I know that he's aware of racial issues, but I'm pretty sure that there's many things that in his essays that he might have been 
I did not know this. And to be able to possibly influence someone in our community who has that kind of cachet uh, is kind of important. So I, I, I secretly hope that there's something in here, something sparks something in him that may later on lead to good things that lead to change. Because that's the whole thing about, you know, allies, as it were, is you, you can't really move forward um, unless we have someone kind of, we need people, we need people to be on our side because they're the ones with the power. So to know that these voices that everyone's been sharing, um, whenever I tweet an essay, I always get lots of great response from other people of color who said, yes, this is great. I understand this. But it's also great to see the people who are not of that, the mostly white people who say, wow, I did not know this. And that's what's really great about these essays. Yes. For the regular fiction, uh, the original fiction, I believe you still have until February the 19th to send us your stories. Um, it's coming up fast. Send them along. <laughs> uh, one thing that I thought was interesting, Nello, is that in one of these essays, uh, I'm not going to get this name right, but on Awai Mayela. Oh, yeah, Mayela. Uh, um, and it's uh, not his... Um... I don't know the pronoun. The I think it's "stat" is is. I don't know the pronoun conjugation, unfortunately. Um, but the they're non non binary, so oh, say, right. I think it's used. Okay, wait. Let me say that again then. Um, on Oyo, yeah. I, I I'm sorry. I actually can't. <laughs> I can oh, say it. I can say it. I'm terrible because I I work with on brother. Owomoyela. Uh, Thank you. Owomoyela. Okay, so so in in this essay, um, the, the on, on says uh, a bunch of people are wondering if they're people of color enough to submit to the anthology. Um, do you want to address that point? <sighs> I don't know what to do with that. I sort of think if you've asked yourself, if you're asking yourself the question, maybe you're people of color enough. Um, there, there is the, what we decided to do, Christine and I, was to, to not, uh, police who's people of color enough. We threw it back on the community and said, look, be honest with yourself. Um, so if, if you're white, don't just send us a story to make a point and say you are a person of color. Um, if you identify as a person of color or part of person of color communities, we let you decide what that means for you. We are not asking the um the submission form does say do you identify as a person of color other than that we're not asking you to prove anything so um try submitting it see what happens yeah i actually ha i came into the same issue when i was soliciting for the personal essays uh i had a couple people who i asked who i who i thought were who i thought were people of color but when i asked them they said they did not consider themselves people of color um, because that is sort of, a, it is sort of a weird term. And, you know, people, for instance, of people who are of Spanish descent, um, may, may be considered Latino or Hispanic, and that still may be considered white, and maybe you're not, you don't experience the same amount of oppression because you're white passing, and so you don't really feel like a POC. And, and it's, and it's, it's the, and we, I think we, we, we also had a special Nalo, and it's the issue where this is kind of, if, if you don't feel comfortable, and I had someone else who, who's actually sort of, coming to terms with the fact that she's a person of color and that she's, you know, white passing mixed race, but hasn't really, um, quote unquote, come out as a person of color because people don't often know about that of her heritage. And, but she's trying to inter interact with it more, but she didn't want to, uh, um, sort of come out in this issue as it were. 
And it's it's the if you feel comfortable calling yourself a person of color, then you are a person of color, and you can and you feel free to submit. You you can check the box. Like I think the, the box just says identify as a person of color, and that's all. That's the only question you need to answer is whether you yourself identify as a person of color. And if you don't feel comfortable submitting to the anthology, if you don't feel you are of color enough, submit it to all the other anthologies, submit it to magazines. Just don't sort of um, hold back. Send your work out there. You're entitled, whoever you are, to send your work out there. Um, okay, so we're, we're basically out of time. So let me just say about uh, people of color destroy science fiction. I think you can find out everything you need to know just by going to uh, destroysf.com. Um, and as I mentioned in the intro, as we're recording this, the Kickstarter has just passed $30,000, which means that there's going to be a people of color destroy uh, horror. horror. And we're still aiming to get 40000 so we can get people of color destroy fantasy. And there's another stretch goal beyond that. Um, Sunil, is there anything kind of logistically speaking that I, I'm forgetting to mention here? Um, the only thing, no, we, we would definitely like to hit our, our, our biggest stretch goal, $50,000, because that is the coolest stretch goal in that there's a, there's a, a John, John Joseph Adams sampler anthology of sort of, uh, stories like people of color and getting 50,000 means you get like a full scale anthology of stories like people of color. So you get not only this whole issue, of stories like people of color and everything else, but you get a whole other anthology and this is more opportunity for the work to be seen and read and loved. And to, again, combat the notion, I think as Nala and Christine said in their mission statement, that the work of people of color is inherently lesser, which is the most ridiculous thing that anyone has ever said. <laughs> All right. Well, I think the most ridiculous thing anyone's ever said is a good note to end on. <laughs> so, uh, so I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Nala Hopkinson. Nisi Shaw and Sunil Patel. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been wonderful. <laughs> thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Nalil Hopkinson, Nisi Shaw, and Sunil Patel for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including John Dodds, who writes, Essential listening. I don't think I'm betraying the fine folks I blog and sometimes podcast for, adventurous in sci-fi publishing and amazing stories but I think it's fair to say that this is the one sci-fi podcast I would never be without. Intelligent, witty, and sometimes mind-blowing, great guests and smart interviews. I recommend you to anyone I know who loves science fiction and fantasy, and also to people who claim they don't enjoy either genre. You bring out my inner geek evangelist. So big thanks again to John Dodds for that great review. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, Please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. We currently have 182 listeners supporting us on Patreon and 131 who have supported us via PayPal. So big thanks to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for today's show, Casper Mattress. Remember that if you do decide to order a mattress, you should visit casper.com slash galaxy and use the promo code galaxy. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, 
visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.